of the limiting beliefs I had that prompted me to write Radical Candor is this belief that we have to choose between being a really kind person and being successful. That is incredibly limiting. Do you ever feel like the person most getting in your way is you? Do you have an inner voice that whispers, you can't do it? Welcome to Tiger Therapy. My name's Pippa Woodhead and I am no therapist, but I know firsthand that the big bad walls of career dreams are self-doubt and limiting beliefs. For the past few years, I've been interviewing business leaders about work and I have felt like an imposter for, well, a lot of these conversations. Each week, I'll be speaking to someone brilliant who's achieved success on their own terms. Join me as we hear about their life, their career journey, and find out what role, if any, self-doubt and limiting beliefs have played a part in their story. I don't know about you, but I'm sick of holding myself back. A key thing I'm learning is no matter where you come from, you get to choose your mindset. So lay back on the Tiger Therapy couch and let's meet today's guest. After I finished recording this episode with Kim Scott, I posted to social media a screenshot of the two of us in the virtual podcast studio. And I had so many messages from people saying, oh my gosh, Kim Scott, she's my hero. Her work has completely changed how I work, has changed how I lead people. Kim has had many big moments in her career, including working under Sheryl Sandberg at Google and being a CEO coach at companies such as Dropbox and Twitter. But what really put her name on the map was her book, Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity, which was a Wall Street Journal and New York Times bestseller. Since the amazing success of Radical Candor, she's released another book, Just Work, How to Confront Bias, Prejudice and Bullying to Build a Culture of Inclusivity. In this conversation with Kim, we discussed why, if you manage people, you don't have to choose between being a pushover and a jerk. We also discussed what to do if you're being harassed at work. And of course, Kim's experiences with self-doubt and limiting beliefs. So, Kim, I've thought quite a lot about how to start this interview, and I was hoping we could start somewhere in the middle of your story. And that is, can you tell the story that you tell in the preface to the revised edition of Radical Candor, where you'd had this amazing best-selling book, hopefully you were enjoying your success, and then your work was parodied on a TV show. I'd love to hear you tell that story. Yeah, okay. So we'll begin somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean. I was on a flight flying to London from California. And at some point in that flight, Silicon Valley, the show came out and it was a whole parody of radical candor. And I landed and my, and there were all these texts. And because I was in London, I couldn't like watch. I don't know. There was some sort of permissions <laughs> problem. So I couldn't watch it. So a friend of mine actually kindly videoed, took her phone up and took a recording of Silicon Valley so I could see it. <laughs> and at first, my heart kind of sank. Because I'm very serious about the care personally part of radical candor. Mm. And the show didn't take that seriously at all. So they were really doing, as far as I was concerned, they were doing an episode on what I call obnoxious aggression and manipulative insincerity. And they were calling those things radical candor. And so I was a little sad because it's, it's easy to misinterpret 
radical candor as like an excuse to act like a jerk. In fact, I would say a limiting belief that a lot of people have is that in order to be successful as a leader, you have to be a jerk. And a lot of people choose not to become leaders because they think they're going to have to become a jerk in order to become a leader. Mm. That was exactly what I was trying to confront in when I wrote Radical Candor. And so I thought, gosh, you know, maybe I should have called the book Compassionate Candor, and then it couldn't be sort of misused in the same way. But I don't think a book called Compassionate Candor would have sold as well as a book called Radical <laughs> Candor. And as it turned out, even though I was all upset at first about this, uh, about this episode, it was great in the long run. It sold a lot of books for me. So when they say there's no such thing as bad PR, it's true. Well, nice. And hopefully people, some of those people read those books. So it all worked out. Because if you read the book, I don't think you would confuse radical candor and obnoxious aggression. No, quite. If you're being parodied in a TV show, it's kind of a sign that you've made it to the big time, but naturally hurtful too. Yeah. So I'd like to rewind a little bit earlier in your career. And I always love it when people have kind of quirky things in their career story. And back in the early 90s, you went to Russia and one of the places you worked was for a diamond factory. Could you tell us about this time? Absolutely. I studied arms control in college and I wound up moving to, you know, if you study arms control in Russian literature and Russian, it's not clear what to do with all that when you graduate. <laughs> I figured one thing to do was to move to Russia. So I moved in 1990 to, it was still the Soviet Union. And I was working for a financial management company that was investing in these Russian military factories that were converting to civilian production. So like tank factories that were starting to make tractors and that sort of thing. And then the coup happened. The Soviet Union collapsed. The private equity firm pulled out of Russia and I was left trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I wound up taking a job with a New York-based diamond cutting company. So we were cutting and polishing large Russian diamonds. And this was actually my first management experience. And I thought business was boring and management was uninteresting. It was not something I had any interest in, but I needed a job. So I wound up and what, what this company wanted to do was start this diamond cutting factory. So I had to hire these diamond cutters, these Russian diamond cutters. And this was 19, it must have been the beginning of 92. And I was trying to hire these guys and I thought, well, this will be easy. Business is boring. You pay people. What's so interesting about that? And, you know, the ruble was worth nothing and the dollar was worth a lot at that time. And so I thought it'd be really easy. And, and I went to talk to these diamond cutters and they said, well, what we really want to do before we take the job is we want to have a picnic with you. And I'm like, all right, well, I can have a picnic as well. You know, That's so random, a, a literal picnic, a literal picnic right, with, okay. with shashlik, which which is sort of barbecued ribs and uh, barbecued meats, like a shish kebab, actually, and and vodka. And by the time we finished the bottle of vodka, it became clear that what they wanted to know was whether or not I would help them get their families out of Russia if things went sideways in Russia. So as you can imagine, I've been thinking a lot about these people since the invasion of the 
Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. And I hope they're, they're okay. But anyway, I really realized that what people wanted was not just to be paid. They wanted a manager who gave a damn. And that was the first moment when I realized that management really matters and that it's actually pretty interesting. And so that kind of began my long journey <laughs> into management through a bunch of failed startups. And then I worked at Google, then I worked at Apple, mm. and then I wound up being a CEO coach and writing my ideas down in a book called Radical Candor. So have I got it right that your sort of dream job was to be a writer, but more novels, right? <laughs> yes. In fact, I'm working on a novel right now. Are you? Uh, and I've written three novels, none of which ever got published, but I self-published them. So you can buy them if you're interested on Amazon. Yeah. In fact, The Measurement Problem is my Russian novel, the, the novel mm. of, of Russian days. And then I wrote another one called Virtual Love, and that's sort of set at Google. Mm. So, I mean, to want to be a novelist, I guess you have to be quite interested in the human condition, which I guess then lends itself quite well to management, being a good, being a good manager. Yeah. And in particular, sort of what interests me and, and why I was interested in reading Russian literature is what are the conditions in which people are miserable and what are the conditions in which they're happy and productive? <laughs> and how can we get more of the happy and productive conditions and fewer of the miserable conditions? And that's sort of also what interests me about management, because in the end, in fact, I was just rereading Anna Karenina recently, and I thought, you know, the whole problem Lev is talking about is a state and how to man and 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 he thinks that it's this economic system problem. Like, mm. is it communism? Is it capitalism? Is it something else? And I'm like, no, it's just management. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you're just managing your your estate very poorly. If you could go back in time and give Tolstoy some advice, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just like how about good management? And we can skip the whole the whole communist uh, fiasco. Okay, so I'm, I'm a big fan of going and working in another country for a, a period of time. In fact, I, I haven't been home yet. I've been away for 10 years. But I, th I think you learn so much about yourself by leaving your hometown, your home country. Really curious to hear, what did you learn about yourself? So I lived in Russia from 1990 to 1994. And what I learned about myself was that I was able to navigate the world with a lot more confidence than I ever imagined that I could. You know, I graduated from college with this degree in Russian literature and this interest in military conversion. It did not seem like there were any jobs in the whole world that allowed me to pursue that. But I just moved there. And I moved there and was writing a paper and an academic appointment, but it was not clear. I was earning $6 a month. You know, it was mm. not, it was <laughs> not clear that I was going to be able to support myself. And then I wound up like with the ideal job that that was exactly what I was interested in or what I thought was the ideal. And then I got, of course, underpaid and harassed. And then I got a totally different kind of job where where I thought it wouldn't be interesting at all working in the I had no interest in diamonds. And yet that was a wonderful experience. So living there opened me up to a world of opportunities and really taught me that there's a lot of value to pursuing what you want, but there's also a lot of value to looking for the good in the things that kind of fall into your lap. Mm. Great answer. I, I think leaving your home puts a lot of things into perspective. 
makes you realize a lot, a lot of the things you may have cared about at home don't seem so important. And that's very freeing. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I think the big experience I had with that was when, when I was, so I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and I had traveled to Florida. So I'd only ever been to Memphis and to Florida. I had never been to Europe. I'd never even been to New York City. Like I, like I really had not been many places. And my mother decided that she was going to take me to China for my 16th birthday because this was 1981, I guess, uh, because it was a long time ago now. And her thinking was that Europe wasn't going to change that much. New York City wasn't going to change that much, but China was changing a lot. And so let's see it early. Let's see it now. And I remember going there and meeting so many people who were so energetic. They were learning English by watching TV shows. You know, they were, they were so entrepreneurial, so determined to better themselves. And I mean, at this point, like in Beijing, there were no cars almost. It was all bicycles. You know, it was a very different situation. And I remember realizing that how lucky I was and that the best thing I could do is not feel guilty about the luck, but appreciate it and try to do some good with it. So then it was from Russia, you came back to the States and then your tech career began and you had numerous big roles. And I'd love if you can take us into that day. I'm also, I'm very aware that everyone asks you to tell this story, but it's brilliant. Can you take us into that day when Sheryl Sandberg gave you some feedback and that was sort of the beginning of the whole radical candor thing? Yes, absolutely. So I had just started this, I'd moved from New York to California. I was all nervous about this new job and I had to give the founders and the CEO a presentation about how the AdSense business was doing. And I walked into the room and there in one corner of the room is the CEO doing his emails like his brain has been plugged into the <laughs> machine as he has no knowledge that I've walked into the room. And there in the other corner of the room is one of the founders on an elliptical trainer stepping away, sort of wearing toe shoes and a bright blue spandex unitard, super tight. <laughs> Not what I was <laughs> expecting or frankly wanting to see in the room. So just like you, I felt a little bit nervous. How was I supposed to get these people's attention? Luckily for me, the AdSense business was on fire. And when I said how many new customers we had added over the last couple of months, the CEO almost fell out of his chair. And what did you say? This is incredible. What do you need more marketing dollars? Do you need more engineers on the project? So I'm feeling like the meeting's going all right. In fact, I now believe that I am a genius. And I walked out of the room. I walked past Cheryl and I'm expecting a high five, a pat on the back. And instead, Cheryl says to me, why don't you walk back to my office with me? I thought, oh, wow, I screwed something up in there, and I'm sure I'm about to hear about it. At the same time, I was open to hearing about it because she had already, in several cases, solicited feedback from me and responded well when I had some criticism. So I didn't think it would be a total disaster, but you know, you're never eager to hear from your boss about <laughs> having messed up. And she began the conversation not by telling me what I had done wrong in the meeting, but what I had done right. And not in the feedback sandwich. I think there's a less polite term for that sense of the word. The The shit sandwich. You you can say that. (laughs) Okay. Not in the shit sandwich sense of the word, but really seeming to mean what she was saying. But of course, all I wanted to hear about at this point was what I had done wrong. And eventually she said to me, you said I'm a lot in there. 
Were you aware of it? And with this, I breathed a huge sigh of relief, and I kind of made this brush-off gesture with my hand, because if that was I, all I had done wrong, who really cared? And I said, yeah, I know. It's no big deal. It's a verbal tick. And then she said to me, I know this great speech coach. I bet Google would pay for it. Would you like an introduction? And once again, I made this brush-off gesture with my hand. I said, no, I'm busy. I don't have time for a speech coach. And then she stopped. She looked me right in the eye, and she said, I can tell when you do that thing with your hand that I'm going to have to be a lot more direct with you. When you say um every third word, it makes you sound stupid. Now she's got my full attention. <laughs> and some people might say it was mean of her to say I sounded stupid. But in fact, it was the kindest thing that she could have done for me at that moment because she knew me well enough to know that if she didn't use just those words with me, and by the way, this is a really important point. She never would have used those words with other people on her team who were perhaps better listeners than I was. But with me, if she didn't use just those words, then I never would have gone to visit the speech coach, and I wouldn't have learned that she was not exaggerating. I literally said, um, every third word. And this was news to me because... I'd been giving presentations my whole career. I had raised money for two different startups giving presentations. I thought I was pretty good at it. And it really got me to thinking uh, sort of a couple of things. One, why had no one told me? Mm. (laughs) And it was almost like I'd been marching through my whole career with a giant hunk of spinach between my teeth and nobody (laughs) had told me that, that I, you know, that it was there. So why had no one told me? And also, what was it about Cheryl that made it so seemingly easy for her to tell me? As I thought about her management style, I realized it boiled down to two pretty basic things. She cared personally, and she challenged directly at the, at the same time. I knew she cared about me, not just as an employee, but as a human being, because she would do things like my father was diagnosed with late-stage cancer, and I was devastated, and she could tell I was devastated. She said, Kim, go to the airport right now, get on a plane, fly home to Memphis. You need to be with your family right now. Your team and I will sit down together, and we'll write your coverage plan. That's what great teams do for each other. We've got your back, and we'll cover for you when when you need it, and you'll do the same for us. And those were the kinds of things that she did, not just for me, but for everyone who worked closely with her. She couldn't, of course, do it for all 5,000 people in her organization. No matter how talented you are, relationships don't scale. But those were the kinds of things that she would do for the people who work directly with her. And if relationships don't scale, culture does scale. And when a leader treats their people with real care, then it's much more likely that they, in turn, will treat their people with real care. And that creates a great culture, and that's really important. But it wasn't all caring. It wasn't all sunshine and roses. It was also this challenge directly part Mm. of radical candor. And it's that caring and challenging don't sound so radical that I would call it radical. But the fact of the matter is everyone I've ever met in my career struggles with feedback. And so I'm going to revert to my basic, most basic thing I learned at business school, which is that all of life's hardest problems can be boiled down to a good two-by-two framework. (laughs) And so the radical candor framework is care personally is on the vertical line, challenge directly is on the horizontal line, and there in the upper right-hand quadrant is radical candor. Mm. So, I mean, I have to, I really admire 
Sheryl Sandberg and any any boss who can give feedback like this. I mean, it sounds so pathetic. I, I have a bit of a need to be liked, which I mean, sounds a bit pathetic, but it's, yeah, I mean, it's very common, right? I think you got to let go of that. It's okay to want to be liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all have that <laughs> desire. But I mean, this is why giving feedback is so hard, right? I'm scared that I'm going to hurt their feelings and then they're going to hate me. And so then which I know is something that you write about a lot, I have a tendency to be a bit too gentle and then my meaning is lost. It's not clear, yes. Yeah. When you fail to give feedback effectively, I know you've got lots of stories about this, what can the repercussions be? The repercussions are, one, the person who you didn't tell the thing to doesn't fix the thing, Mm. and so they keep doing the thing. So it's worse for them. It's worse for everyone around them because other people are usually having to clean up those mistakes. It's bad for your relationship with that person because when they finally do realize that, that you didn't tell them, they're like, why didn't Kim tell me? You know, I thought she, I thought she cared about me. And why didn't anyone tell me? So now, th- now you've destroyed your relationship, but you've also hurt the whole culture on the team. Now nobody feels safe. Because they feel like if they're making a mistake, nobody's going to tell them. And they also feel like it's not safe for them to point out mistakes when they notice mistakes. So Amy Edmondson, who coined the term psychological safety, and I wrote this article about how creating a psychologically safe environment, it, it all starts with soliciting feedback so that people know, by leading by example, so people know it's safe to give it to you. And then also being willing to give people both praise and criticism that's really clear, that challenges them. So I think, you know, I can, I can share what looks like you have a thought and then I'll share a story to further illustrate the point if you want. Is that the story of Bob? Yes. I love that story. Yes. No, please go ahead with your story of Bob. (laughs) So one of the most painful moments of my career. And by the way, this is one of the things. If, if you like me, I mean, the reason I wrote radical canter is that I also struggled to give feedback. I hate doing it. (laughs) You know, it's not, it's not that I love it. Mm. It's just that I know it's important. So I, I bet as, as I'm telling my Bob story, I want you and everyone listening to us talking to think about what is their Bob story. So I had just hired this guy. We'll call him Bob. And by the way, this doesn't have to happen between an employee and a manager. It can also happen with a roommate or, you know, in any kind of relationship. Anyway, in this case, Bob worked for me. I had just hired him. I liked him. He was smart. He was charming. He was funny. He would do stuff like, we were at a manager offsite playing one of those endless get-to-know-you games, and everybody's getting more and more stressed. And Bob's the guy who has the courage to raise his hand and to say, I can tell everyone is really stressed out. I've got an idea. It'll help us get to know each other, and it'll be really fast so we can get back to work. <laughs> Whatever his idea was, if it was fast, that's what we were going to do. And so Bob says, let's just go around the table and confess what candy our parents were using when potty training us. Really weird, <laughs> but really fast. Weirder yet, we all remembered Hershey Kisses right here. Still love them. And then for the next 10 months, every time there was a tense moment in a meeting, Bob would whip out just the right piece of candy for the right person at the right moment. So Bob brought a little levity to the office. Everybody loved working with Bob. 
one problem with Bob. He was doing terrible work. I was so puzzled. He would hand stuff in to me. There was shame in his eyes. And I couldn't understand what was going on because he had this incredible resume, this great history of accomplishments. I learned much later the problem was that Bob was smoking pot in the bathroom three times a day, which maybe explained all that candy (sighs) that he had at all times. But I didn't know any of that at the time. All I knew was that Bob was doing really bad work and he was handing and he, he I got a sense he kind of knew it mm. but he would hand stuff into me and what I would say to him was oh Bob this is such a great start you're so awesome everybody loves working with you maybe you can make it just a little bit better you know so this is what you're talking about so let's sort of analyze what was going on when I said that part of it was what I call ruinous empathy that's what happens when you do show you care personally, but you're so worried about not hurting someone's feelings that you fail to tell them something they'd be better off knowing in the long run. So part of it was really ruinous empathy. But if I'm honest with myself, part of it was what you were saying. Part of it was this, I wanted to be liked thing. Part of it was what I call manipulative insincerity. Because, you know, Bob was popular on the team. And Bob also was sensitive. And so there was part of me that was afraid that if I told Bob in no uncertain terms that his work wasn't nearly good enough, that he would get upset, he would start to cry, and then not only would he hate me, but everyone on the team would think I was a big you-know-what. And so the part of me that was worried about my reputation as a leader, that was the manipulative insincerity part. And the part of me that was really worried about Bob's feelings, that was the ruinous empathy part. And those two things often go hand-in-hand. We all do some of both. And this goes on for 10 months, and eventually the inevitable happened. And I realized that if if I didn't fire Bob, I was going to lose all my best performers because they were frustrated. Not only had I been unfair to Bob not to tell him, I'd been unfair to the whole team. And the people who were the very best at their jobs were the most frustrated because their deliverables were late because his deliverables were late. They were not able to spend as much time as they needed to on their work because they were having to spend so much time redoing Bob's work. And so I sat down that start conversation with Bob that I should have begun, frankly, 10 months previously. And when I finished explaining to him where things stood, he stopped. He looked me right in the eye and he said, why didn't you tell me? And as that question was going around in my head with no good answer, he looked at me again and he said, why didn't anyone tell me? I thought you all cared about me. Now I realize that by not telling Bob, thinking I was being so nice to him, I'm firing Bob. Not so nice after all. It was like, it was a terrible moment. It was really bad for me. It was much worse for Bob. It was bad for the whole team and it was bad for our investors because we weren't getting stuff done. We weren't hitting our, our goals. And yet it was too late to save Bob at this point because even Bob agreed he should go because his reputation on the team was just shot. All I could do in the moment was make myself a very solemn promise that I would never make that mistake again and that I would do everything in my power to help other people avoid making that mistake because it's painful. It's such a good story and it demonstrates the need for for radical candor so well. And I've heard you tell the story before and actually one of the things I was really thinking, I don't remember what sweets, what candy I was given when I was potty training. I was thinking, maybe this is an American thing. Were we given sweets in England? I don't know. It probably is an American thing. (laughs) 
everyone I know who was raised here has memories. Other people, I mean, some people like they that they teach children to potty train in a totally different way. So <laughs> have to have to ask my parents. <laughs> yeah, ask them. Ask them. So you you mentioned before about soliciting feedback, and I'd love to actually get your your opinion on this. Like, what's the best way to ask for feedback? Yeah, don't say, do you have any feedback for me? Because you're mm. wasting your breath. Yeah. I can already tell you the answer. Oh, no, everything's fine. So you want to make sure that you think sort of about how you're going to ask. The question that I like to ask is, what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? But don't mm. write down that question. Because if you sound like Kim Scott and not like yourself, people won't believe you really want to know the answer. I was working with Krista Quarles when she was the CEO of OpenTable. And she said, I could never imagine those words coming out of my mouth, Kim. She said, the way I like to ask is, tell me why I'm wrong. Okay, that's fine mm. too. So rule number one is ask in a way that sounds like you, not like some management consultant, right? The second thing is to make sure you ask the question in a way that it can't be answered with a yes or a no. Like Krista didn't say, do you think I'm wrong? She'd say, tell me why I'm wrong. And the third thing is you want to make sure that it not only sounds like you, but that you're adjusting for the person who you're asking. So there were a couple of people on Krista's team who found her tone too aggressive. And so she had to adjust for them and ask them in a, in a slightly more gentle way. Being authentic to yourself does not mean ignoring the impact you have on other people. Uh, so you can do both. You can pay attention to other people and to yourself at the same time. So that's step number one is you got to think about how you're going to ask. Now, in fact, if everyone who is listening to this can pause, if you're not driving, and write down your question, if you are, like, speak it into your voice memos, but write down your question, write down who you're going to ask it of, and when you're going to ask it, our time today will be very well spent. So come up with your question. That's the good news. Really important to do. The bad news is no matter how good your question is, the other person is still going to feel uncomfortable. So step number two is just to embrace the discomfort. Close your mouth and count to six. I only made it to three just there. That <laughs> felt like a long time. Six seconds is incredibly long time. Almost no one can endure six seconds of silence. So they're probably going to tell you something. So now it comes to step number three, because congratulations, at this point, you've dragged that poor soul out on a conversational limb they never wanted to go on. So the third step, it's crucial to make sure you're listening with the intent to understand not to respond. Do not get defensive. Do not start sort of challenging the feedback right off the bat. But that can be tricky. You know, how do you make sure that you're listening with the intent to understand? I think, think about asking some follow-up questions. For example, my daughter at the breakfast table told me, Mom, I wish you weren't the radical candor lady. And immediately this wave of parental guilt washed over me. And I thought, oh, no, I'm spending too much time at work. She wishes she had, you know, all the kind of things. And then I thought, well, I should make sure I'm listening with the intent to understand. So I said, well, who do you wish I were? And she looked at me and she said, I wish you were the lady who minded her own business. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> totally 
totally different. I could spend a little more time at work. So don't assume. Don't make assumptions that you know what the person means. The biggest problem with communication is the illusion that it has happened. So make sure that you're you're going into this conversation really curious that that you're asking follow-up questions. And then once you finally do sort of get on the same page and understand what the person is saying, it comes to step number four. And step number four is to reward the candor. It's not enough to say thank you for the feedback. In fact, often people will experience that as insincere. So what you want to do is if you agree with the feedback, fix the problem. You know, you want to make your listening tangible. So-and-so told me that they hate the tea in the break room. And so I got these three new kinds of tea. And then ask for more feedback. Did I overcorrect? Did I undercorrect? Like, make sure that you are sharing, showing people that you've done something with, if you agree. Now, what do you do if you disagree with the feedback? This can sometimes feel like getting wedged because you just ask the person for the feedback, but you don't agree. And now what do you do? I think the best thing to do in that moment is to sort of look for the five or 10% of whatever the person said that you can agree with and give voice to that. And then you want to say, as for the rest of it, and but giving voice to it, by the way, that just shows that you are not shut down to feedback. You're not automatically defensive. You're looking for the areas of agreement. And then say, as for the rest of it, let me think about it and then get back to you. And then you got to get back to them. I think very often we fear that disagreement is going to pose a risk to our relationships. But it's not spoken disagreement. It's not respectful disagreement that poses a risk to our relationships. It's that unspoken disagreement where resentment starts to pile up and then it eventually explodes all over everything. Mm -hmm. So you want to make sure that you're having a respectful explanation of why you disagree. And at, at a certain point, you've got to listen, challenge, commit. And the more often you can say, okay, well, We'll do it your way. Let's try it your way. You know, let's see what happens, the better. Yeah. So it's another version of the shit sandwich in a way that you're starting with the small nugget that you can agree with before going into. Yeah, I hope it's not the shit sandwich, though, because the, the problem with the shit sandwich is that the shit sandwich usually sounds something like, oh, Kim, I like your bookshelf. <laughs> uh, I, I really hate your your book. I hate radical candor, but I like your glasses. Like, and the <laughs> stuff about my glasses and my bookshelf does not make me feel any better. Like, that's what the shit sandwich sounds like. What you're doing in this case is you're genuinely looking for some aspect of what the person said that you really do agree with. So you're trying to focus on the area of agreement. It's a, it's a version of yes and, not mm, the sit, mm -hmm. shit sandwich. Yeah. Yes, I agree with this, and I'm not so sure about that. Let's talk about it. So let's say I've got my my own version of Bob. I've got a one-to-one -one with him later today. I want to give feedback that while they're a much-loved member of the team, there's been work that's been a bit sloppy, there have been mistakes. How do I phrase this? How do I open that? Yeah. So I think that in your one-on-one -on -one with Bob, I'm going to recommend that you solicit feedback. Don't give it. Don't save feedback up for a one-on-one. -on -one. Mm. And then the next time you see, let's imagine that the problem, you're Bob, the problem is that they're turning in sloppy work with, you know, riddled with typos and sloppy mistakes. The next time you get work from him and you look at it, you say, look, there's, there, there's a lot of mistakes here, Bob. 
and I want you to correct those and, and hand it back in to me. And then if he hands it in sloppy again, say, Bob, you didn't, A, you didn't fix the mistakes and B, I'm noticing a pattern here. And, and this is going to hurt you in your career. Like you are, you're capable of fixing these typos, but for whatever reason, you're not doing it. And it's going to trip you up. And you need to know that because I want you to succeed in your career. In other words, your one-on-one is for mostly listening to Bob and soliciting feedback. The best moment to give feedback, both praise and criticism, is in these two-minute impromptu conversations. And uh, and you want to do it as close to the moment as possible. You don't want to save it up for your one-on-one. You definitely don't want to save it up for a performance review. The other thing I would say is that very often we have a little feedback debt, a little criticism. You know, stuff has been piling up because we're reluctant to, to share this. I think if you can take a deep breath and remember the things you appreciate, you genuinely, so I'm not talking about, again, the shit sandwich, but make sure that you're also focusing on the good stuff, that you're, you're telling Bob what to do more of as well as what to do less of. Mm-hmm. What happens if it is review time? And you need to say something because you can't, you haven't, you haven't taken the opportune moments to point it out, or maybe you have taken some opportune moments to, to point it out and nothing's changed and now you're at the review. Yeah. Okay. It's two very different situations. In one case, you have not. So let's take the harder case first. So in the situation where, where you have someone who's worked for you and you have not been having these impromptu two minute conversations all along and they're going to be surprised. I think you've got to own the fact that you messed up too. So you start maybe with a little bit of self-criticism and you say, it's review time and I'm realizing that I haven't said this to you as clearly as I wish I had. But it that doesn't mean it's not a problem. Like the fact that I made a mistake doesn't mean I'm going to keep making that mistake. I'm going to be super clear now, and I'm going to help you fix it. I'm going to do everything in my power to help you fix this problem. Uh, but it still is going to have an impact on your rating. I mean, you don't want to give someone a high rating who you don't think deserves it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you have feedback debt, you don't want to add to the debt. <laughs> but that's really hard because now you is that like you should get dinged in your rating as well because you haven't done your job as a manager. And the person may point that out and you may say fair. Yeah, you, you want to accept accountability for it. Uh, in the case, uh, that you have been pointing it out all along and the behavior hasn't changed, then you say, look, as we have talked about, you know, for the last quarter, or the last half year, or however often you do your rating, this is an issue and it's not getting any better and it's going to impact your performance rating and your bonus. And you can't get promoted until you fix this problem. Okay. It's hard. Yeah. But very often, I think that, in fact, right when Radical Candor came out, there was this move to do away with performance management systems because so many people were using the performance management system as an excuse not to have the impromptu two-minute conversation. And in the in the second edition of Radical Candor, I really talk more explicitly about the difference between performance development conversations, which are these two-minute impromptu Radical Candor conversations, and performance management. And you need to have both. You just need to have a performance management system that that reminds people you should have been having 
these conversations all along. You don't want to save them up. Yeah, that's really, really good advice. Okay, Kim, I'm asking everyone to come to this conversation ready to share some stories of times where self-doubt got in the way or limiting beliefs you may have. What can you share with us? I think that one of the limiting beliefs I had and and that prompted me to write Radical Candor is this belief that we have to choose between being a really kind person and being successful. That is incredibly limiting because I was, I was unwilling to give up on my, you know, I'm not always kind, but I always try to be kind. You know, I wasn't willing to give up on my aspiration to be kind, but also wasn't willing to give up on, on my desire to be successful. And so I think that is a false dichotomy that limits a lot of people. We sort of talked about that early on. Another thing that I found happened to me in the course of my career was it's, it's almost like denial is a form of self gaslighting. And so there, there were a lot of, you know, I experienced a lot of bias, some prejudice, some bullying, some discrimination, some harassment in the course of my career as a woman in tech or, or just really in any sector, I think. And. I, I think I pretended that a lot, that those things were not happening when they were in fact happening. And so then I was internalizing them more than I needed to. And, and when I wrote Just Work, it was, it was like a four year therapy session <laughs> where I worked, worked through a lot of that. Uh, because I think that it can really trip you up. Uh, if you, if you don't say, you know, you did this to me. Like, I, I never want to think of myself as a victim, but, I think there's nothing wrong with me because someone else did something wrong. So in this four-year therapy session of writing Just Work, were there any particular aha moments like, oh, that's why I'm like this? Uh, Here's an interesting story from that book. So my very first job out of college, I was dramatically underpaid. I was paid 25% of what I should be paid. I was working for a financial management company at this point, a, a private equity firm. My boss's boss frauded me in the elevator, sort of sexually assaulted me in the elevator. There was another another executive at the firm also sort of made a grab. It was like, it was a really, it was a tough work environment. You know, I got through it and I wound up getting another job. And, and I never really stopped to think about what had happened. So fast forward 20 years, I was having dinner with a guy who I had worked with at this time, not one of the guys who had done all these things. And he said to me, you know, you always looked like your hair was on fire, you know, and he was laughing like as though I was stressed out for no good reason. And I realized even 20 years later, I didn't stop and say, well, here's why my hair was on fire. (laughs) This, this and this was happening. Here's another sort of belief that people have, which is don't use as an excuse that these terrible things are happening to you for not doing your best work. And I'm like, how could I possibly do my best work in those, (laughs) in that kind of environment, you know? And I really, I, I think it's so important to recognize that when you're being treated badly, it does impact your performance. Of course, it impacts your performance. Uh, and it's not because you're not capable of doing better, but you're, you're being set up to fail. Mm. So um, people who've experienced bullying or high levels of prejudice, they've had their mental strength challenged 
as a result. So what's, like, what's your best advice for someone in a work situation where they're feeling this? I think the one thing you can do is to begin to document what is happening to you. Uh, even if you have no intention of using that documentation to bring a lawsuit. But I think just writing it down can help dispel some of that gaslighting because it's so easy to start blaming yourself for what's happening to you. And, and that is very destructive. So I think documenting can help you regain a sense of agency. The second thing I recommend doing is building solidarity. I mean, one of the things that helped me more than anything else in in the job where I was being underpaid and physically harassed was that I talked to uh, I talked to one of the partners at the firm. He wasn't able to fix the situation for me. But he acknowledged that what was happening to me was wrong. And then, and then when it came time for me to leave, he helped me find another job. And so I think building solidarity with people, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of evidence that shows if there's only one person who you can talk to and trust at work, you're going to do better work and you're going to be happier at work. So build that solidarity. The next thing I would say is locate the exit nearest you. <laughs> so do what they, what the flight attendant on your last flight told you to do. One of the mistakes I made when I was in that situation is that I felt more trapped than I was. And I want to acknowledge that, that I was in a privileged situation. And, and so I could have easily gotten another job, but I didn't understand that I, that I could easily have gotten another job. So start interviewing, start looking for other jobs if you feel like you're in that situation. Sometimes you're well and truly trapped, but more often than not, you're less trapped than you think you are. So I would really encourage people, before you go talk to HR, go talk to your boss, you want to know, before you go into any kind of negotiation, you want to know what your best alternative to a negotiated agreement is. And so if you know that there are other jobs that you could get, when you go in and confront the situation, you're going to do so with a great deal more agency and strength. Surprisingly often, talking to the person who's bullying you will help. I mean, if the person is a psychopath, it's not going to help. But sometimes people are, are not aware of the impact that they're having on others. A common example is that especially working in male-dominated environments, which I have for much of my career, there'll be a lot of people be giving each other shit all the time. And and they do that as a way to be inclusive, actually. But sometimes it doesn't feel to the person who's on the receiving end of the shit like they're being included. So they don't understand the impact that they're having. And just talking to the person can help. Uh, not always, but sometimes. And, and it's more likely that you're able to do that, that you feel free to do that if you know you're also free to go if you don't feel trapped. It can be very important to talk to HR. Uh, and I want to say that a lot of my favorite people in my career are HR professionals. A lot of my best, Shona Brown, my, my mentor, my, one of my favorite people and closest mentors led business operations, including HR at Google. But, but sometimes in some situations, HR is not on your side. And so you want to understand 
what the HR landscape is. HR needs to represent three very different constituents, the company and its legal liability, the company's executives and the employees at the company. And you want to make sure that they take that third part very seriously uh, if, if you go talk to them. And sometimes even I talked to Susan Fowler, who wrote the memo about her treatment at Uber that, that really shook up Silicon Valley. And even though it was clear to her that HR was not going to solve the problem, she kept going to HR because that helped her mm. document how the, the problems, the, sort of the systemic problems at the company. And I think it made her memo much, much stronger. You can write your story, tell your story. One of the things that gives me a great deal of confidence that things will change is that between Me Too and Black Lives Matter, People are telling their stories more often, and the stories are having impact, and the stories are helping to build solidarity, to go back to the to the first point. Like, building solidarity is really important, and storytelling is a great way to do that. Yes. So, I mean, on that, you've coached a lot of very successful people. Can you talk us through the mindset of some of the top CEOs you've worked with and, and any patterns you've noticed in regard to self-doubt or limiting beliefs or lack thereof? You know, it's interesting. I just have this book. I was just sharing this book, The Confident Mind. Uh, this is a psychologist uh, uh, for the U.S. military. Uh, oh, wow. And he wrote, it's a great book. I think that the leaders that I work with, first of all, they're open-minded. Second of all, they're confident enough to be humble. And thirdly, they have a great deal of mental toughness. That means that when they're attacked unfairly, they know how to shut that out. But when they get criticism that is going to help them get better, they're open to it. And knowing how to, you know, when to put the filter down and when to take the filter up is, I think, an important part of, of leadership. So I have a wrap-up question that I'm asking everyone. Can you nominate someone to come on Tiger Therapy? So it could be someone who you think doesn't have any limiting beliefs or self-doubt, and then I'll find out if that's true, or someone who you think would have just a really interesting perspective to share. How about Astrid Tumenez? Astrid Tumenez is the president of Utah Valley University. She spent some time in Singapore, though, at Lee Kuan Yew University. Right. And she is an incredible human being. I think you should interview Astrid Tumenez. So she grew up in the Philippines and quite poor in a village without running water and wound up going to Harvard and studying Russian and being a academic advisor to the Soviet Companies Fund. And then she spent some time at Microsoft as an executive there. And, and then she has now become a brilliant leader at Utah Valley University, which is a really interesting, Utah Valley University will admit anyone who applies and they figure out how to pay for anyone who applies. Oh. It's how all universities ought to be. Interesting. Okay. So she's overcome incredible challenges and had a brilliant career. Okay. I would love to speak to her. Thank you so much right. for that suggestion. I'll introduce you. Yes, please. Thank you so much, Kim. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tiger Therapy. You made it to the end, which makes me so happy. I really hope you got something from this conversation. It would mean so much to me if you could subscribe to Tiger Therapy on whichever podcast platform you're listening on. 
The more subscribers we get, the more people will find us, and then the bigger and better guests we'll be able to have on. A big thank you to everyone who made this episode possible, including our brilliant guest and, of course, the team at Tiger Hall. <laughs>